I don't really enjoy doing things that I don't have confidence doing or a level of competency at. There's a level of a threshold where it becomes sort of a friction point for people or a barrier of entry for people where they won't start something until they know they're good enough at it. But ironically, you have to do the thing to get better at it, to become good enough to continue to do it. You know, when we when we consider the two aspects like effort versus form, it's usually, I mean, it's always, it depends, but it's also like, it depends on who it is, you know, and there's certain circumstances where we would go one way or another. And I think hearing the discussion between us two on it and getting people to actually see how our brain works around the question and around the quote unquote debate is like the gold, you know, that's where people will get a lot out of it. Um, so for context of this podcast, uh, I, I do want to preface that me and Austin are friends. We're not arguing on this. Um, we agree on a lot of things. I think that he's a really good person to have this discussion with. Um, I'm also going to, I want to say this because, and you might've experienced this too. Like I've been on podcasts before where I'm being interviewed to quote unquote. Yeah. And there's times where I'm like, God, this person talks a lot for me being the person supposed to be being interviewed. So I want to preface that this is like, uh, uh, this is supposed to be an equal conversation between both of us on the show. So it's not like I'm just interviewed. So if people are like, shut the fuck up, Cody, and let Austin talk, it's because yeah. we're both here to talk about the same thing. So, um, the, the first thing I want to do is a really quick intro, um, obviously who you are. And then just like a education background would be, because I think that's a big point of why um, I wanted to talk about this with you, just like the things you've gone through from courses and certifications and like the book you wrote and things like that, I think make you really fit for this conversation. So I want you to shout that stuff out right away and then we'll kind of get into the, the first layer of this discussion. Yeah, right on. I'm Austin. Nice to meet you guys. If you're listening, <laughs> um, my background uh, is in formally in exercise science, strength conditioning. I mainly came from the strength conditioning backgrounds. I've been lifting weights since I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I was extremely fortunate to have an extremely overqualified strength conditioning coach when I was really young. Um, you know, I started working with this, this person, uh, Josh Wildeman is his name. And he's still, you, you, if you guys know who I am, I, you know, I've talked about this guy ad nauseum and and he was just a huge role model for me and continues to be throughout my professional career, but a huge role model for me in the beginning uh, with my lifting. And his philosophies around lifting always stemmed from being able to do the foundations and the basics really, really well before you were able to graduate to more complex skill-based things. And I, I think that's extremely important. The more, the more intro level you are or more beginner you are, but it's specific to the younger populations getting into the gym, right? Um, as they are, those individuals are, you know, still developing, still going through, or even yet to really begin puberty. And so, you know, that's kind of my, my initial start. And so there's a heavy emphasis on, on lifting technique from the beginning for me. And so it was just really ingrained from, from the jump. And then from university, um, I ended up actually having, so he was my, high school. I started working with him in middle school, junior high, had him as my strength conditioning coach and all throughout high school sports and all the sports that I played. And then actually he went on to start teaching and became strength conditioning coach for multiple sports at the university I ended up graduating from. And so, I mean, I've been with this dude forever and we still talk to this day. Um, you know, I'm very grateful for that relationship we still have. And from that, you know, from high school, I got into lifting for bodybuilding and physique sport. And I ended up turning professional in the IFBB when I was 20, um, after, you know, and, uh, several shows. Um, and that obviously continued to, to blend my early years of, of really nailing down exercise technique and learning how to, um, do this thing at a high skill level and competency level. And that translated, you know, pretty directly into my competing career, I believe, and the success I was able to have alongside timing and genetics and puberty and all of the things that went along with that timing. Um, but also right after that, I got an internship down at 
and I spent the entire summer down at MI40 gym, which was, you know, still an, an operating gym down in Tampa, Florida. But this was back in 2016, um, before that place sort of imploded and all of those great minds that were there just dispersed. Right. And sort of like, you know, <laughs> bugs, when you turn the lights on, it's just like, Phew, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so that, you know, obviously if you guys listening or familiar with sort of the, the Ben Pakulski's of the world, the, the Kasim Hansen's from, you know, now known as N one education, um, Adam Miller, uh, Cody Moxley and all of those guys, you know, uh, Bryce Baum was another one down there. Hypertrophy coach, Joe Bennett was another one that was down there. So I got to just, I got to work day in and day out and shadow these trainers, these, these great minds every single day. I mean, six days a week. And I, if I could get in there on a seventh, I would. And I did this for four months straight. And that basically led me into uh, working for in one education and as a coach and an educator for them for about a year and a half. That was, that was from 2018 into 2019 in terms of the, the recency of that. And, you know, that obviously just continued on the high level of importance that was put on exercise technique, um, you know, and, and that sort of evolved conversation around the effectiveness or creating effectiveness from strength training and, and weight training as it, especially as it pertains to strength sport and physique sports. Um, and then I've sort of taken my career in a, a slightly different path and, and focused on a little bit different of a population speaking more to general population folks. And that was really where the book, uh, science of strength training that I published in 2021 really kind of came out of and, you know, background really in strength conditioning translated to strength sport and physique sports and from a competition standpoint into, you know, authoring a book on, on the subject matter itself. Um, and really kind of changing my tone and, and speaking more to your recreational gym goer and lifter more so than the physique or strength athlete. Love it, dude. Um, I, I actually didn't realize uh, you had uh, a part of your history was at the MI4 gym. That's super cool. Um, yeah. It's still yeah. like a destination <laughs> gym I want to go to, even though I know it's not safe. It's anymore, worth going to me. Yeah. Like it's a cool gym. Like I've just seen so many videos. That's it. Cause I haven't gone down there and I haven't spent much time in Florida period. I've been like once ever, but, um, it's okay. Perfect. Perfect context. I think that that kind of sets the stage up perfectly for why, again, why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Now this, this is going to be really hard for you. And I promise I'll give you a chance to elaborate and I'm going to do the same. That way we can both have our opinion, um, mm -hmm. elevator. So I don't know how many floors are on this elevator, but you have to answer this question <laughs> yeah. in an elevator time, which means okay. you really can't answer it with justice. This is like when, uh, Instagram, it was like IGTV. And then it was like IG reels. Now you can't do anything for longer than 90 seconds. And as a coach yeah. who likes intellect, you're like, which I know both of us are this way is like, that was such a struggle, like trying to yeah. minimize the time, but, um, form versus effort. So execution, form, proper technique versus effort in the gym. What matters more? You can only pick one. So hard. <laughs> um, are we, so I'm going to answer in a way that is going to protect my soul and credibility. <laughs> um, so the quickest answer is I think in the beginning, I, I do see, I do see exercise technique as a fundamental skill of strength training. I know you and I have talked about that previously, but beyond a certain threshold, I think effort takes the crown. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I honestly, I think, I don't think I, I would change that actually. I think that's exactly how I would answer it too. I think that, um, efforts pointless if your form is shit. So at the beginning you literally do have to, and because we know newbies grow no matter what it's like okay if you're brand in the gym focus on that you'll grow no matter what focus on that and then you just have to understand when that point is where you have to really just start like just fucking push some weight and like really get after it in the gym you know um so moving beyond that and allowing us to give a little more context i think that's ultimately the that is the truest answer why is this the case? Like, why is it a battle between the two? And I, and I see like, and I would love to just get your overall thoughts on this. And this is kind of how I see it happening in the industry. I see that, um, there's a lot of people who prioritize effort 
and they go balls to the wall, super intense. Their training sessions look like a motivational montage constantly, and they're jacked. So you can't really say shit, you know? I mean, some of them might be on gear. It is what it is. Um, some of them might not. And even with gear, you still got to work hard. So, like, give them that. And then you see people who are overly cautious about form. And it's a very mixed bag there. And this is where I don't have enough, like, real-world context to actually – uh, justify what I'm about to say, which is why I think you'll have more um, justification behind your answer or explaining that you can do. But I see a lot of people who over-prioritize form and it's causing them to never really train hard and their physique show for it. Like they're like super OCD about form and they just don't look that impressive. And then there's other people who they do look very impressive, but my first hesitation is like, that's not how you got that way. Like you were somebody who just, you hit big lifts and some accessories. You trained balls to the wall all the time. You built your physique. Now you're like been in the gym for two decades and you're saying this is the key, but it's like, why is it the key if you did something else? You know, I, I see the same issue with the low volume stuff. There's a lot of people who are, have been training for two, three, four decades and they're like high volume is just going to fuck you up. You need to do low volumes. That's how you grow. You don't want too much stress and cortisol. And then you look at them and you're like, dude, you just do that now because you've maxed out your genetic potential and you just don't want to bang up your joints because you've been in the gym for 30 years. So I think that there's so much context in it depends styles answers that need to be said to let people understand what actually matters so that they don't just grab and sorry to, to spoil it, guys, this isn't an actual debate where we're going to give you an answer. There's, it's not one <laughs> or the other. But like I want people to leave with, OK, this is like when I can say, it, you know, okay, I'll let my form slide, give it a little body English and just get after it. And this is when like, no, I need to protect that form and focus on that more so than the effort. And there's some like follow-up questions with this that I think will allow people to find that answer better. But to start, why do you think it is that, um, kind of going back to that first part that we have this discrepancy, you know, and like there are these people who claim one thing and you don't know if that's really the case that they've been that way the whole time and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think a big part of it is is the conf level of confidence within the lifter itself themselves, right? I don't, you know, we're all probably, you know, we're all adults listening to this conversation and having this conversation, um, I would imagine. And as as I can speak for myself, as an adult, I don't really enjoy doing things that I don't have confidence doing. Mm or a level of competency at. So I, I think there, to a certain degree, I think there's a, there's a level of a threshold where it becomes sort of a friction point for people or a point or a barrier of entry for people where they won't start something until they know they're good enough at it. But ironically, you have to do the thing to get better at it, to become good enough to continue to do it. Right. So it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword there. And you know, I think I have an interesting perspective on this because I've spent my time, you know, early on in my career was really focused in on exercise technique from the time I was 12, 13, 14 years old, right? Through, through my history, if you guys listen to the introduction there. And so I, I think I had a base level of competency and, and really a confidence within certain compound movements, Olympic-based movements, and single joint isolation isolation movements. You know, I think I had a certain level of competency there. And so when I first got into, I didn't start training for physique sports until I was 19 years old, you know, and I turned pro when I was 20. So, and if you look at my starting photos when I was 19, I had a great frame. Genetically, I was set up to be successful within that sport. But to look at the transformation that I went through over nine and a half months from starting to compete to turning pro, it's quite a, a con, you know, it's quite a contrast, even looking at my starting position, starting point physique. And I would argue that throughout, you know, between the ages of 19, 20, 21 and 22, I wasn't overly focused on my exercise technique. I didn't really think in twice. I didn't think anything of it necessarily, right? And if you look back at old videos, you're like, no, you have good technique. But to the standard of like now, you know, it's like arguable, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, okay. You did some things right. 
but you put a lot of English on stuff. You trained just, you just trained really hard. Right. And to that point, that's kind of where I think these things mesh. And from another perspective, you know, in 2017, in 2018, really the, the year of 2017 was when my, my, you know, social profiles and, and the awareness of me existing on this planet to the industry really kind of took off. You know, I gained, you know, a couple hundred thousand followers in, in that year, ultimately through the exercise technique route, right? A lot of the X and check sort of posts uh, to, you know, for about six months, I was posting two or three of those videos per day, every day of the week, you know? So I covered a lot of ground in, in terms of this is, you know, if you're doing this exercise like this, it's not, you know, it's quote unquote wrong. And if you do it like this, it's quote unquote, right. Right. But I think what, and, and we're all familiar with those, those types of posts. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, and there's a reason I've started to move away from them. Funnily, you know, funny enough. And I have a hard time. I've even tried to regenerate some of that content, but I have a hard time internally actually making those definitive statements anymore. Right. Um, because the more I've learned, the more I've started to actually refine my beliefs around exercise technique. And I think it really comes back to the beginning agreement of past a certain threshold exercise, exercise technique probably doesn't do much more for us. It's rather the level of intensity and consistency of that intensity and volume of intensity over time that is actually starting to transform our physique and transform our strength and performance and all of those things. And so my initial answer there, you know, and a big part of it, I, I do think that ultimately adults and just ultimately adults just want to be decently good at things they're trying to do. And, and it's, it can be an, uh, sort of embarrassing in it. You know, I know it was to me as a shy individual, like if I'm not very good at something, I'm quite embarrassed at it if I'm trying to do it, you know, and that's just, it's a part of being human, right? Yeah. That's just a part of existing as me in this world. I know that's true for me. And so even from a very young age, like my grandmother always tells the story of, you know, always watching me on the sidelines as a young kid, my brother would hop right in, wouldn't skip a beat. He's like, I want to play, let me in. And I would stand on the sidelines for like the entire first game and just study how it was done. I studied the, the little details of like, okay, this is general rules. This is how the best individuals are playing it. And so those are the things I need to take serious and consider when I go into the game and remember, right? And so, even from a very young age, I was very hesitant to even put myself out there to be embarrassed at not having a high level of competency at the thing I was trying to do. And so that's my initial answer. And I'd, I'd love to hear yours of why you think people kind of have this, this obsession over it. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, man. I think that, um, I think it, it, I agree with the confidence aspect quite a bit. I, I also think that there's a lot of people who will grab on like a there's a lot of people who are professionals in the industry who will grab on to the new thing and try to become an expert into it as a way to stand out. And I think technique and form is the thing right now. My problem, mm -hmm. my biggest problem is like, again, like I've never met a pro physique, pro bikini, pro bodybuilder, pro anybody from a, a physique sport perspective. So arguably the people who are the best at creating the development of their body who trains like a pansy, they all train really fucking hard. Not all of them have perfect form though. You know what I mean? And that's where yeah. it's like, yeah. sometimes you just got to kind of look at history and, and success leaves clues. And I think that effort is probably more important just because of that. But again, if you don't have like a standard baseline, you know, form and technique, it's just junk volume. You're just going to hurt yourself. So I think that like, and this is where I often tell people they, uh, and this is where I see the problem being with those definitive videos or answers uh, that you were talking about. And somebody will watch somebody else's form and they won't, consider the um i believe the the term is anthropology but like limb lengths wingspan height like you know posture all these things change how somebody's squat technique is for example they'll watch somebody do it and 
they don't look just like them in their videos or they don't squat the exact same way. So they think they're wrong. And when I correct them, I'm like, your form looks great. And they're like, but it doesn't look like how I'm trying to do it. And I'm like, does anything hurt? No. Okay. You're good. Push yourself. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I think ultimately to me, I'm like form should be good enough to where, you know, for sure you're not going to hurt yourself. And I think that's the level of confidence you need. Then get after it, push some weight. Yeah. Let me know if you have, let me know if you agree with this way of looking at it. So I often make the comparison, um, of exercise technique, you know, as being the, of a, the fundamental skill of strength training, right? It's the thing you have to be have a threshold of skill at to do the thing you're trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. It's the thing you're doing right. is lifting the weight during weightlifting. So I would argue there's a, a absolutely a certain level of competency or, or ability or capability you need to have at the thing you're trying to do, right? And so there is a certain threshold within that though. And so I have to make a comparison with that notion, right? I have to make a comparison to basketball. So, you know, exercise technique is to, is to weightlifting or strength training as dribbling is to basketball. So you need a certain level of competency and, and, and skill within the thing you're trying to do. Right. And so in basketball, for example, uh, for those of you listening, who maybe played basketball, you're at least aware of basketball. You need to, you need to have that fundamental level of, of ball control and dribbling, right? Cause if you don't, you quickly become a liability on the court. You very quick, you like, you become targeted, you become a liability and you become a vulnerable part of that team or a vulnerable piece of that team. The five players on that, on that court at that time to the, to the greater goal of the game is, which is to win. Right. And so if you don't have a certain level of competency or a certain threshold of competency within that thing, which you know, what we're talking about is, is dribbling in the game of basketball or, or at least ball control. You do become a liability. You become the vulnerable piece, the weakest link of that chain. And you will, things will start to expose themselves, right? And um, within that as well, you probably don't need, you know, like we're looking at, so if you look at the best ball handlers in like NBA history, you know, arguably like Allen Iverson, uh, comes to mind. Um, oh, sh I had a, I had a really good example of this. Um, I won't be Jason able Williams. To help you. Okay. I was gonna say, I won't be able to help you at all. I don't yeah. know. Basketball. So <laughs> Jason Williams. So, uh, nicknamed white chocolate, right. Played for the Sacramento Kings for the longest time. He's, he's most infamous for that behind the back elbow pass where he kind of fakes, he throws it behind his back, but then he elbows it in the opposite direction. So oh, it, dude, it's some, look up Jason Williams highlights. It's some the globe, some globe. Oh show. man. Yeah. Or like if you, if people listening are familiar with like street ball, right. Mm -hmm. You have like hot sauce or the professor. And so Jason Williams, I actually watched a video of Jason Williams the other day, um, actually having a conversation with the professor and going through a few different ball handling moves. And Jason Williams came out and, and they were talking about, uh, Steph Curry and his ability to, to shoot, um, and how lethal it, his skill is at shooting. And Jason uh, went on to basically say, I think I would have been a lot better at shooting if I would have actually practiced shooting as much as I practiced dribbling. He goes, I practiced, I, so his, his partner, he would shoot with, I forgot who it was. Doesn't matter. So the, his partner, he would shoot with in practice. Jason, Jason Williams wouldn't actually shoot that much in practice. He would mainly rebound, do ball handling and got really good at passing. And admittedly, he admitted this. He said that he knows held him back from reaching his true potential at a well-rounded game in terms of sh the ability to shoot, pass, and dribble, right? And so I really like that example because I, I think it, you know, pretty easily displays how we can get too lost in the skill of one thing and lose sight of the greater, the kind of the, the greater of the whole, mm -hmm. right? Um. And so I think if you, that kind of lends its hand to the paralysis by analysis uh, that we can start to have when it comes to exercise technique and exercise breakdown as you fatigue and get closer to failure and um, your ability to, to fight through and extend 
your ability to to reach technical failure and end up hitting a greater level of muscular failure, right? And you, you certainly need a, a, a level of of confidence and competency within your lifting technique to get there, as you know, as you very well know. I mean, how you know, as form starts to break down, or as as the as the sec it's really really hard, right? Fatigue really starts to build up, and earlier in your career let's say you're trying to get a set of 10, right? You're, and you picked a load. Let's say you're, you're doing a set of 10 now, but you, you give that same load and rep goal to you at the very beginning. And let's say strengths fairly equatable, right? Decently equatable. Your ability in the beginning to maintain technique as fatigue builds and that stack it's really hard is not as good as it probably is now right so arguably especially if your goal is improving body composition but especially gaining muscle which is a huge conversation right now and forever and always will be which is great is your ability to maintain technique is not only important at the beginning of the set when the loads are lighter but as the load gets heavier, more intense, and your intensity of effort starts to climb as those sets get harder and harder and harder and closer to fatigue and closer to, to muscular failure, right? And I, I think there's a, an intimate balance in a relationship there that should be considered, um, especially if you are going to the gym, you know, in hopes of building appreciable amounts of, of muscle tissue. Yeah. Um, I have a few thoughts on that. I think that... I think the basketball analogy, despite my lack of basketball awareness or knowledge, is actually really good because, as he kind of put, assuming that skill and execution in the gym is what dribbling is to basketball, if you just keep on getting better and better at skill, but you never think about effort or you never think about volume or going further, you're just going to be somebody who's really good at lifting, but you don't look like you're really good at lifting, and that's a problem for most right. people, right? So I agree with that 100%. I think that um, the... I'm not going to disagree with what you said, but like to take it further and just kind of pull more nuance out of it. Essentially. One thing that I see as a, a potential issue with uh, the conversation of a set getting harder and you know, there's two sides of this. There's one as the set gets harder and fatigue accumulates, if you don't have good technique or form, or I would even say, you know, body awareness and the, the skill, which is a neurological aspect of the movement. Uh, it's going to be hard to to get it there because as a set progresses your form gets sloppy you have no body awareness you don't even know how to keep and maintain that form however i think on the same token if people are too focused on form and for example if we are doing a upper chest fly and i'm so focused on keeping my arm in the exact line of path and the elbow angle to my torso so i'm like in the perfect position to just isolate my upper chest i don't want to hit any other part of my chest like now I'm going to have an issue because you can't really like the mind muscle connection isn't so unbelievably good in your upper chest that you don't feel anything else and that nothing else fires when you're doing it. And so I think people can take it too far. And if they start feeling it going anywhere else, they'll begin to just quit. And they didn't take it all the way to what it could have uh, potentially like from a fatigue perspective or an exhaustion perspective. I would say the same on like a, a lateral raise or a rear delt fly. If we're just trying to isolate the rear delt or the uh, lateral raise, I was talking to a, uh, somebody I was working out with, my buddy Steven, the other day with this. And it's like, be, I know how to isolate my rear delt, which I'm going to focus on doing. When I start feeling my traps fire a little bit, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily always going to stop. I just begin to be aware that I need to pay more attention to my form because I'm starting to fatigue. But maybe if I allow my traps to actually start firing, I might actually take my rear delts to a like even closer to failure than I would have otherwise and not really sacrificed much, you know what? I mean, I love big traps too. Great. I got a little bit of work there and I didn't like crush my traps. So I'm, they're not overly sore, but the point is, is yeah, like it's not the muscle I'm targeting, but if I stop as soon as I feel them, I might never take my rear delts um, to the point of exhaustion or fatigue or intensity, effort, volume, whatever you want to call it that they could, or maybe need to grow at a certain point if I'm so unbelievably worried about isolating each muscle group. And that's kind of where I see the issue arising is like people, they don't let volume 
still have a priority. And most research shows volume is extremely important. So if you limit your volume because you're so overly paranoid about execution of an exercise, I think it's a big issue. Now, granted, it's very difficult to research the importance of execution in a study because it's just, you know, I mean, speaking of N1, I mean, it's kind of N1, you know, it's it's so hard to like, you can't create yeah. like a, a standard, a standardized like approach to that for a study. It's just very difficult. But um, that would be my take on it. I agree with you. I just think that like that, I think that's where people go wrong in that like set fatigue realm, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I, I would, I would agree to that, you know, and I, I think that's where my viewpoints have certainly started to deviate over the past several years, you know, from when let's say 2017, when I was making a lot of these videos, my, even my vocabulary shifted and changed, right? I, I don't really use the word isolation really ever anymore. I really only use the word bias mm. because that's really all like we that. can do, right? Because no matter what you're doing, you're you're biasing a certain thing mm -hmm. with your relative arm path or how you're choosing to load it, um, things like that. Which direction is the resistance coming from and all that entire equation, right? But at the end of the day, like there's just, like in any row variation, you can't isolate anything in the back because, well, to get there, other things have to be working to yeah. stabilize the the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder, your pelvis, like everything, like everything needs stabilized internally, you know? So I, I think there, the conversation around isolation in general, I think has started to definitely shift, which is a hopeful thing. And I, I think a lot more people are starting to understand the difference between isolation and, and bias, you know, and like the little nuances of like, you know, can we bias different heads, of the bicep, different heads of our divisions of the chest or the lats. I, I think it's one of those things. It's sort of, it's pretty wild to say that you certainly can't, especially things with like the chest and the lats. Those are massive fan-shaped muscles, Yeah. right? With divisions, the, the, the fiber orientation, the fiber direction and the line of pull of those, of those muscles, if you look at them anatomically, like they're going in different directions. So clearly they perform different actions. They, they take your arm through different paths of motion and help get the arm to that position. Right. And so I think it's pretty outlandish to say that you certainly can't have a bias towards a certain division of a muscle. You know, even if it is the biceps or the, the lats of the chest, or maybe even potentially the quads, but at what expense, you know, and how much bias, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that we tend to write off a lot of that conversation around biasing certain things because it's like, well, you're not isolating it. So who cares? And it's like, well, it, with the amount of volume I'm doing in the, the limited so at my, at my advanced training age and the fact that I'm a natural guy and always have been, I have very limited recovery capacity. Like I have a very limited recovery capacity. So if I am trying to bring up a lacking body part, I probably need to be as pinpoint as I can be to limit the amount of junk volume I'm performing to get to that end goal of biasing a little bit more tension towards the either division or just the muscle group I'm trying to bias mm -hmm. and limiting to some degree the amount of tension being placed on the other other tissues. But that does not mean that those those tissues are not receiving accessory volume, right? They're, they're absolutely still receiving it, right? And any back variation, you're absolutely going to get, you know, especially, you know, any rowing variation, you're absolutely going to get the elbow flexors involved, right? You're absolutely going to get a lot of, you know, you name it involved right? Um, within that, within those joints, right? Those are going to be involved, but you can start to, with exercise technique, with your choice of exercise, you can certainly start to bias things. And when I say bias, just to kind of round out that thought, I'm talking like, let's say it's 60, 40, 70, 30, even, right? The most extreme, maybe 80, 20, but it's like, there's never... I would say more accurately, it's probably like between, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30 at most, 
for most things. And again, those aren't exact numbers, but it's just a generalized thought around the ability to actually bias certain things versus isolate them. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think it also gives a little bit more grace to people doing isolation exercises. You know, I like that term yeah. a lot because again, it's like, as long as that's the main thing you're feeling, the main thing you're training, the main thing you're fatiguing, like you're good. Um, this kind of made me think of another like layer to this. And that would be almost prioritizing exercise selection over exercise execution. And the reason I say that is because I think that there's a lot of people who are so focused on exercise execution that they have to do like, and I like this exercise, so nothing against it, but like the iliac row, it was like, you have to, this is the row. And it's like, I also know some clients that they can't fucking do that right. Or anatomically speaking, they're just not built for that exercise. It's the way their posture is that certain things you're not going to change, right? If somebody has like kyphotic shoulders and they're 45 years old, I might not be able to change those because they've been like that since they were a little kid. And now they're finally strength training and trying to change their posture. I can help a little bit. There's only so much you can do to like bone and joint, you know? But the point is, is somebody who is uh, somebody, some people swear by a lat pull down with, you know, like I have all those, uh, they're not prime, but like similar to the prime handles. I have a bunch of those different yeah. ones. I love them. Um, they work great for me, but some people like they just struggle with lat pull downs. You give them a single arm pull down variation, be that an iliac row, a straight arm pull down, a typical row, like more of a horizontal row, but something in the single, like the unilateral pattern. Now all of a sudden they feel their lats on another level and it could be because they're able to kind of like side bend. So laterally flex their spine, which the spine can help do, or the lats can help do. But point being is it might not be the form as much as they're finding the right exercise for you, right? Your form has got to be decent, but like, would you agree with that? Like sometimes people might need to actually think about that more than being so meticulous with their form. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do think that, you know, I, I think this is, there's a two way street here, right? Exercise selection can be impacted by your ability to actually perform certain things as well. Right. So putting this in real world application, you know, as you and I would use it as coaches, I absolutely have to get specific and fairly granular, even with very quite broad information. Right. When I, when I say that, I mean, when I look at an individual, right. To individualize anything. And I think when the word individualize or individualization gets tagged on people and as a coach, we think, okay, that means the most advanced thing for that body part, that region of the body, that individual, but ultimately it could come down to, well, what's their training age? What level of competency do they actually have? What's their, what's their threshold for adaptation? Well, if they're beginner, new to training, they don't have a training age. Um, their training age is they've walked and got up out of chairs and done haphazard pushups their whole life. Well, then, all right, their threshold for ad- adaptation is quite low. So I don't really need to do too many things that are, quote unquote, uh, overly biased or crazy you know, overly specific, but what if the specific or the more biased exercise is the thing that they can actually perform safely towards the beginning of their journey that allows them to actually work harder, deeper into fatigue? What happens when that's the answer? Yeah. Well, that gets kind of complicated, right? Because it's like, well, all beginners should just bench squat deadlifts. They should do the primary functional movements. Well, what if you get someone that comes in and they're not competent at all in any of those movements? Are you going to spend eight weeks of their weight loss journey? Like we're talking like general population folks, right? Recreational lifters, people who just want to look and feel better in their life and, and improve their longevity in life, right? Like just general goals we typically label them as an industry of, oh, well, they don't need the complex. They just need the general, which I do believe is true, but to a, to a point, to a degree, right? And why limit yourself as a trainer? That's like being a carpenter and saying, well, since you're new to carpentry, I'm not going to give you any of the specialized tools that we use as master carpenters, but I'm asking you to do similar things to the master carpenters generally you know you're trying to create similar structures with less tools 
what would happen if you gave that early on carpenter with a proper apprenticeship, AKA a personal trainer, guidance of a personal trainer, the actual tools to get to the end goal more efficiently, more effectively. Mm -hmm. And through that competency that they're gaining through maybe more specific exercises, they're able to actually more quickly put things together in a comfortable environment for them to actually start to challenge themselves really, really hard and start to gain the confidence to rebuild and to come back and stay consistent with that thing they're trying to get better at. You know, that's a complicated thing that I don't think is discussed very often. Yeah, 100%. And I think that sometimes, I think that we can like swap around the layers of that or the order of operations at times, depending on the person. But even somebody who we do, you know, we focus on exercise. Like I've had plenty of clients who, they were getting frustrated because they couldn't get a certain exercise to work. And uh, there's a certain point where as an online trainer, even with like, I don't work with brand new people typically in the training realm. Personally, uh, people on my team do at times, but like there's times even where we'll do their nutrition. We tell them to go hire our in-person coach. Cause sometimes I will help, you know, being with somebody, but I'll, I'll scrap the exercise and move on. Cause I'm like, I'm not yeah. married to that exercise and it, we're not going to waste weeks and weeks and weeks of you practicing an exercise, not getting anything out of it, which your goal is to get something out of it. We're going to move on to a different one. Keep building your lats. Let's say, keep building your body awareness, your ability to fire those lats in different planes of motion. And then maybe we'll come back to it and see if it works. If it doesn't, no big deal. Like there's no perfect exercises. So, um, I definitely think there's ways that we can layer this differently depending on the person. Um, something I definitely want to touch on that I think is important. That's very rarely discussed. And if it is discussed and I'm just oblivious to it, you can fill me in. But, um, I think I see a lot of people, uh, so like we know that effort, you know, your proximity to failure is pretty, pretty important as a gauge for, you know, what intensity you're training in primarily to know, are you training more in a strength realm? Maybe you leave a couple in the tank to avoid injury and just build strength. If you're training for hypertrophy and it's a safer exercise, maybe you go closer to failure. Cause we know that that's pretty important for muscle growth is your proximity to failure. Well, people see somebody doing a, let's, uh, let's say a, a hip thrust or a hip abduction or a glute kickback or a cable fly or anything with a really light load. They're going slow as fuck and they're like perfecting their form and somebody's like coaching them through it and they fail at like half the weight and they're like, oh my God, like this is crazy. And I understand that. And I've done that with people in person with a pushup like years and years ago, just to show them like, Hey, I want you to learn how to create maximal tension. Not that every push-up has to be this way, but I want to show you how to do it so that you can be in a safer position and you can learn how to push through that fatigue we talked about earlier. However, people assume that that means that they can build just as much muscle by doing that, even though the load's light because they're going to failure. My argument with that would be that there's not, like, yes, your proximity failure is important, but if there's also not a certain degree of mechanical tension involved or metabolic stress, you know, the actual mechanisms of hypertrophy, does it really matter? Like, is that actually as good? I know Ben Colsey was very famous for saying, make lightweights feel heavy. Mm-hmm. And I always really respected him and appreciate that. But the more and more I thought about that, and the more and more I actually studied what matters for hypertrophy, the more I realized, like, I don't know if that's the case. Maybe at first, so you can learn the technique. But then, like you said, once you hit that threshold, you probably need to load it up to create as much mechanical tension as possible. Otherwise, I don't think reaching failure like that is actually equal to lifting failure with a heavier load. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I think too, there's always a point at which that becomes, there's always a point of plateau with that effort, right? And I was very, I was very strict with myself for a few years on form, on everything, right? And and if I had any form breakdown whatsoever, that was the end of the set. Okay. I do think looking back, there was a, there was benefit to what I was doing. Was it the most I could be that I could have been doing towards the ultimate goal of putting on as much muscle tissue as, as possible? Probably not. Cause I think I was limiting myself past the point of, of reaching perfect technical failure, right? Or technical failure with still perfect technique. I, I think one of the the most misconstrued tropes within the the space, common sayings, if you will, is your first rep should look like your last or your last, your last rep should look like your first. Mm. Do you say that? God, no. Okay. Okay. 
I didn't know if I was no. gonna. <laughs> I was calling you out. Really yeah, I know. Uh, I I disagree. My last rep does not look like the first <laughs> ever. Yeah, but I I do think your first reps shouldn't look like your last either. Yeah. Right. I, I think that goes both ways, but it's not often looked at both ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm revolutionizing anything. I'm not the first one to say that by any means, but I think it's an important thing to consider. And when we're talking about exercise technique and the, the, at least the minimum threshold of importance that it has within the thing that we're doing, again, it is the vehicle at which the thing we're doing has to filter through. Right. And so a part of this game as well, when looking, even taking back, you know, from a 30,000 foot view of the importance of longevity within this thing that we're trying to, to do in our life, the benefits come from the consistency over time, the consistency across a lifespan, the ability to continue to show up and challenge yourself physically in these ways by creating resistance on the muscle tissues across each joint to keep them healthy and functional, metabolically healthy, and contributing to a greater whole of our health. So that has become more of the importance that I place on things like a fundamental threshold of exercise technique is, I think it, you know, there's a lot of, I think one of the common arguments against worrying about exercise technique is first off, there are two studies that we can point to that basically say that resistance training or bodybuilding style, like traditional resistance training or bodybuilding style training is the safest out of all the types of training, including CrossFit, strongman, you know, powerlifting, yeah, powerlifting, those, those type of strength sports, right? Traditional strength training is the safest. Okay. We understand that. Well, that's great, but that doesn't mean that there aren't outliers. There's always outliers. And we also know that the benefits across the lifespan come from the consistency of being able to continue to show up and do that across the lifespan. So if you're continuously plagued with injuries, which we, you know, we may not always see come out in the research, but everyone listening to this, you and me absolutely know people that have spent their entire training career injured in some way and limited in their capacity to continue to show up consistently across their lifetime. And that absolutely has plagued their health. It has absolutely become something of a limiter within their ability to reach that point in their health or throughout their fitness journey, whether identifying with just their overall health or identifying with their overall goals they have for their, their physique or their strength or whatever. We all know people like that, right? So you can get injured. Absolutely. Right. And I just, I don't agree with the lens of looking through, oh, well, it doesn't matter because it does matter, but to a degree, right? I I do see it as sort of this inverted U, Mm -hmm. right? Similar to training volume. Yep. I do think once we get to a certain threshold, there's a point of diminishing returns. Going back to the Jason Williams thing. You spend your whole career only focused on this one set, like very specific thing to the greater whole of the game or the journey. Well, then yeah, you're going to put off the other important things that are actually probably driving progress, yeah. especially within strength training, you know? Um, and so one of the, one of the main things, one of the common arguments is this promotion of frailty or fragility within paying attention to this aspect of lifting. Right. And, and that's partly why I stopped and why I haven't gone back to this X and check format, telling people like, oh, that's wrong because of the way it looks. Some are obvious. Like some are like, some people just do some things that you're like, yeah, that's clearly visually wrong. And visually like, it's so wrong that there's, there can't be a way we're actually doing the thing we're trying to do to the degree we could be doing it as safely as we could be doing it mm-hmm. and as effectively as we could be doing it. Absolutely, that's true. But it's also true that many people are paralyzed 
by that paralysis by analysis, right? People are paralyzed in thinking, oh, if it's not perfect, I can't add load, right? So I think getting into the idea of good enough rather than perfect, because it's absolutely like, oh, that's good enough. Now take everything else you've learned and, and take the effort component, the volume component, the intensity component. Let's drive that forward. Because now that this is good enough, it'll continue to get better as we go. The better you get at this skill, the more time you spend with the skill, the better you're going to get as we go, yeah. right? So, you know, I, I think that's a common argument against. And I there's, part, there's parts to that that I absolutely agree to. But there's also parts that I think, you know, I, I think we just like to take, again, take stances, live in the extremes. It's where attention lies. It's where yeah. attention goes. And I, I think we can, without realizing it, we can be pulled towards the extreme just for the sake of audience and attention. Yeah, 100% agree. I think that, you know, based on kind of your uh, your experience of, of maybe, I won't say taking it too far, because I think, like you said, you, you probably learned a lot of useful things during that period of time of really paying attention to that and stopping at technical failure, so on and so forth. I, I believe, I can't say this for sure, but I would assume that the uh, research done on taking sets to failure and uh, being within, you know, one to two reps of the near proximity to failure, like really close to failure, if not all the way to failure, and that benefiting hypertrophy are probably more so from a lens of muscular failure than, actually they would have to be because you can't really, I mean, who's going to uh, say that it's technical failure because that's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a personal I think decision. if we saw those, I think if we saw those sets, they would be somewhat atrocious to some degree, depending on the individual. Some crushed it yeah. and some absolutely displayed the atrocity of what it can look like. Right. right. And that's, and I think that's my point, right? Is like, in the research showing that we got to get this close failure, we have to understand that that's muscular failure. And therefore, if we overly prioritize technicality, we might limit our ability to get close enough, if not all the way to muscular failure by stopping at technical failure. And for some people that is better or where some people can like hold that form really well and they get really close and it's still pretty solid. It, it kind of depends on how you grade yourself on technical failure, I guess. Um, and I think that's something really important for people to take away from this because it, it does show that, you know, and to your point, you know, my first rep doesn't look like my last because my first rep is much better than my last, but I'm probably getting more out of my last because I'm reaching close to that failure. So it's not that one's more important than the other. It's just that if your last rep looks like your first rep, you're probably not pushing hard enough. Right. And that's, and that's the big mm -hmm. point that I wanted to push forward. And, um, the last kind of thing that I would kind of lob your way to kind of round out this conversation. Cause I think we're in a, in a good agreement. I think there is definitely, you have to prioritize form first, but I do think at a, a relatively soon point in your lifting career, soon assuming that you're going to lift for the rest of your life. Like, so within the first couple of years, you should be pretty confident in your lifting skill. You got to start leaning towards the effort side of things. Um, but I think there's certain aspects of building muscle that can't be as easily gauged. And that's kind of like the conversation of technical failure. It's like a personal decision stuff, but like, even from a standpoint of, you know, there's so much evidence showing the stretch portion of a movement, the lengthened portion of a, of a muscle in an exercise range of motion is the most stimulus for hypertrophy. I don't know about you, but that is when I feel the muscle the least. Like, yeah, I feel my bicep stretching, but I feel it the most on the contraction. So, mm -hmm. And that's why usually when people do partials, they're doing like these little quarter curls, which are like, if you're going to do partials, you should probably actually be in the lengthened position, which nobody does. Actually, I lie, Mountain Dog, John Meadows used to have like extended sets of those back in the day. Um, yeah. But the reason I bring this up is because I think sometimes in the exercise crowd, this can get misconstrued too. And again, I'm not trying to throw shots this way um, because I've used this exercise to help people uh, kind of build a mind-muscle connection with their glutes and get, you know, get them firing stuff. But the CAS bridge, like I see this or... And I'm like, this, if it's so much better for hypertrophy, why is it missing the number one component of a range of motion to lead to hypertrophy, which is the stretch-based movement? And again, I don't know much about why this was made, so you can actually, if I'm wrong, feel free to school me on this. But I like it for, you know, getting your glutes fired, so on and so forth. But I also think there's a lot of uh, benefit to doing a single leg pattern that puts the glute in a stretch position like a walking lunge or a step up or doing an rdl with a little bit more knee bend to really sit into the glutes doing a, a hip thrust like a full range of motion hip thrust or even your feet elevated get the glutes into a stretched position um if your hamstrings or your quads are firing a little bit it's not the end of the world as we said you're biasing the glutes doesn't mean your hamstrings aren't going to activate at all and if you're trying to only fire your glutes and hip thrusts and not let your hamstrings light up at all, you're probably going to limit your weight and therefore limit your gains. So just your thoughts on that. Like, I don't even know, like 
I actually heard somebody else who's really well known. I, I watched them write this up about how it's the best hypertrophy movement and it wasn't Kaz. So like, I don't know if this is actually what he designed it for in the first place, but um, I would argue that it's probably not the best movement for hypertrophy because it is missing one of the key portions of that range of motion. doesn't mean it's a bad exercise, but I think that if we're going to optimize hypertrophy, we have to understand all these little tiny things and go, okay, we can't leave these big chunks out of the picture. We have to be able to like, yeah, if you can't feel your glutes, use it, but it, it doesn't mean replace the hip thrust entirely always. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Um, yeah, that's, that's been a huge debate, right? On the internet. Um, and from my perspective, and I, I think one, I, I always think it's really important to go straight to the source um, when seeking out the information and the way in the context that it was actually shared versus the context that it's been sort of misconstrued and used for whether right. it's attention, social clout, uh, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing I know to be true is you know, my, my time, the years I spent around those guys, training with them, learning from them, teaching alongside them, the priority remains on lengthened biased, mid-range biased, challenging, hard effort sets, right? And typically what's, what gets pulled out of all the information that's shared is the novelty, mm-hmm. right? So if we take, you know, out of, I think, you know, even this is a decent example, I, I, I think, even taking John Meadows training, what's the one thing we take most notably from John? Probably John's row variation, Meadows mm-hmm. row. That's one movement he did Yeah, for one muscle group. And it's not the only movement he did for that muscle group but by any means, but that's what he's most known for. Right. But John's training involves all different types of movements through all different types of movement patterns and resistance profiles, and probably was heavily biased towards more lengthened exercises. Right. So, and even in the Meadows row, regardless of that, right the the load's always gonna be limited by what you can sustain within the fully contracted position of that movement regardless of where it's overloaded right so i think that's the main point that that i want to kind of share with that with with the glute bridge and the hip thrust being like one i i don't think and nor do i think the the source of that from the original source of that information would also say this as well that that's not the best movement for glute growth or hypertrophy, right? And I I do think though that depending on the program, again, we go back to bias, right? What's the bias in your programming, right? It, it usually comes down to what's the totality of the program actually look like, right? Okay, because this one person's doing glute bridges, we're judging their glutes and physique on the fact that they do this one exercise. And then we extrapolate that into like, well, that must be the missing piece in my glute hypertrophy. It's like, well, probably not. Um, In terms of a certain range of motion that probably should be loaded, right? We should load a muscle throughout the entire range of motion that muscle can move through, right? With different resistance profiles. But that doesn't change the fact that that lengthened portion, the eccentrically dominated lengthened portion of that movement is the most signal that we can get towards that response that we're looking for, that adaptation we're looking for. And and specific to this is muscle growth, right? And so the bias becomes a 70, 30, 80, 20 bias of lengthened to shortened bias movements in a muscle growth program, right? But there's also limitations if you've ever had a program that only has lengthened bias exercises, there's a limitation to how much volume you can accumulate and perform over a four, six, eight week, 12 week cycle of training. Yeah. Because yes, the centric portion 
does probably, it seems to have the greatest signal, right? In terms of the stretch mediated hypertrophy and just that lengthened bias uh, hypertrophy that we're, you know, seeing and, and what's being talked about. But in real application of training and, and program design, in the more training age you have, the more advanced lifter you are, you understand that also there's a trade-off in that to where that's the most damaging part of that rep, where you're going to get the most soreness from that movement, from that range of motion, and from that emphasis in your training. And so how can we start to problem solve around, well, how do we start to add in more volume that doesn't necessarily have that same trade-off? And I think that's in large part where that movement does come in, right? Where it's it's added volume on the tissue. We're not getting nothing from it. I think I don't think anyone would argue, well, we're not getting anything in the glutes from that, right? right? And I'm not saying you're saying that. Are we getting the most from them? No. But also that's not the why they were, that's not why they're there in the first place. Same thing with leg extensions. Leg extensions is a short and biased exercise, right? Slightly different properties in terms of what we're doing with the rec fem and shortening that, where it's really the only one of the only positions we can get that rec fem shortened and trained in that range of motion, which again is important to train these muscle groups through large, through different ranges of motion in different resistance profiles. But same tune, right? Are we getting the quads as lengthened? No. Well, that's also not the point of that exercise. And I don't think anyone would argue like, well, leg extensions are useless. They don't get fully lengthened. Yeah. Well, okay. How many people, how many smart, effective trainers and trainees do leg extensions and they're beneficial, right? And I, I do think there's a similarity. I'm, I'm not saying they're exactly the same. The usage can be different. Absolutely. But in the way that I view it, there's similarities there that I don't think can be ignored. Right. And I do think the most important thing is, is again, going back to a bias, right? There's a bias to to this isolation conversation of exercises, but there's also a bias in terms of exercise selection across programs, Yeah, right? And how we're able to perform them long-term and then how we're able to progress those things long-term in terms of the most, one of the most important things that we're finding with this goal, which is training volume. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think that I agree. And I think that that's why there's an issue with like polarizing statements, polarizing headlines, polarizing hooks and videos like this is the best exercise for glute hypertrophy, which is why I brought it up that way. Um, and even if you look yeah. at like the, the glute guy, right? Contreras, sure. like he made, he like invented the hip thrust. So of course, like he, he's going to push that more than anything. And I think that's great. Sure. And it's a great exercise. But if you really look at like what his girls do, they're doing like hip extension from a lying position, from a standing position, from a kneeling position, hip external rotation from a kneeling position, from a lying position, from a side lying position. They do hip flexion from different variations. Like he's doing all kinds of shit, like a million different variations mm -hmm. throughout the week. So really it's like, okay, he's hitting all movement patterns. He's doing a fuck ton of volume. Like, and some of those are more lengthened. Some of them are more shortened hundred percent. Um, and again, I think that's the, that's the whole point of us wanting to do this podcast, you know, is there's so much nuance involved. And I think hopefully people, um, you know, we're going to, we're, we're hitting an hour, so we're going to wrap this up. But I think that the, the big thing that people can pull from this is that like, there's no black and white answers here, you know, in, in form and effort are both very, very important, but you can't ignore one for the other, you know? And for some people, like, even if somebody was like, okay, but what do you think is more important? I'd be like, it depends on the person. Cause if you haven't prioritized form ever, it's probably that if you train like a wimp it's probably that you know like you have to have both but i think the the best like one liner we can pull from it is what you said at the beginning like once you reach that threshold of competency and confidence in the gym at that point you are safe to push it hard you should do so and you should train harder and lift some weight you know i think ultimately that's like the conclusion of that question or debate i guess given the podcast i fully agree yeah no i agree I think leaving it there is, is a healthy way to, to leave it. Perfect. Um, dude, uh, Instagram, where they can find your book, all that kind of stuff, uh, just real quick so we can put it in the show notes of this podcast. Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at Austin Current. If you type in Austin, I'm a bearded guy who comes up. Um, that's where you're going to find all of my stuff. 
And then my book, Science of Strength Training, it's on Amazon. That's the best place to find it. But you could go to a local bookstore and try and find it. I always, every city and every bookstore I see, I try to go in and see. Um, and the book is in 10 different languages. And so if you are not a native English speaker or you, you know, get a rise out of reading a book in your, your in the your uh, first language or even, you know, whatever, the books in 10 different languages, um, search around, you can find them. Uh, but Amazon is the easiest place to find it. It's a very affordable resource. Right now it's uh, 40% off. It's $11.99. Amazon's kept it there for a long time. Apparently that's the best price for it to sell. So <laughs> it's $11.99. Uh, it's, it's a visual encyclopedia of sort of the science behind strength training. I wrote it for the general population, the recreational gym goer, to be sort of a reference textbook for, for that population. But it's it's highly applicable within personal trainers, especially if you're newer to personal training uh, and being able able to comp competently and competently speak on these topics uh, to your clients uh, and, and to your colleagues. So those are the best places to find it. Dope. Yep. We'll link all that in the description for you guys. And I cannot recommend that book enough. It's something that I think every online or in-person coach should just have on their bookshelf. It, it's a reference guide for sure. After you read it, you just have it there because it's something you can always look back to. So, um, and it's only $11. That's ridiculous. So wow. uh, we yeah. will link that in the description of this podcast. Austin, thank you, man, for coming on. This was a really productive conversation. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. Appreciate it, man. As always. Yeah.